You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, Forensic Science. Is it science? Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes, references, and relevant links can be found at podcast.wordpress.com or at winnipegskeptics.com slash blog. With me today, I have Jem Newman. Hi. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Lauren Bailey. Hello. And Ian James. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a full table tonight. You might want to introduce yourself as well. Actually. Oh, hi. I'm Ashlyn Noble. Mm. I'm. <laughs> <laughs> so you may recall that last month we did a lot of talking about the criminal justice system, and I was supposed to talk about forensic science. More like criminal injustice system, am I right? Uh-huh, eh? uh-huh. Don't okay. talk with your mouth full. <laughs> <laughs> These are delicious muffins, thank you, Lauren. <laughs> they were Ashland's. Oh, wow. I made them. <laughs> um, and having Brandon on the show was great, so yay, Brandon. But uh, I yeah, totally flaked on my segment because it got too big, and I decided to make it its own show. So today we're going to be talking about all kinds of different aspects of forensic science. And then at the end, we're going to talk about whether forensic science should still be considered a science and whether we should trust it and use it in our justice system. Although apparently whether one should or should not use something in the criminal justice system because it's terrible or not terrible doesn't really have any effect as we discussed (laughs) last show. So one of the first things that comes to mind when we talk about the intersection of critical thinking and forensic science is what has happened in the past couple of decades with the huge influx of television shows and media portraying forensic science. And I want to admit something here. I, for many years really wanted to be a forensic scientist. I have a huge soft spot for forensic science because I loved CSI and NCIS and all of these different shows. They were my favorite things. And I, so I went from wanting to be a dentist when I grew up to wanting to be a forensic scientist. And that's kind of how I entered university thinking like, yeah, I could totally still go into that. And now I'm an artist who works from home. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's the same. Yeah. You totally can make blood same. spatter beads. I could. That's not a bad idea, actually. Let's put a bookmark in that one. (laughs) So forensic science, it is collecting evidence that will later be used in a court of law. Uh, There are a bazillion different branches of forensic science. Uh, Something that I was always really interested in was uh, forensic osteology, where you look at people's bones, like the TV show Bones, <laughs> which is terrible, but... <laughs> but angels in it. Yes. I say, we, we do need our Boreanaz fix. <laughs> yeah. That's all I know of it. Horrible way, science, but fairly entertaining show. And forensic science has gone back quite a long ways. There are stories of investigators testing which person's shovel uh, would collect the most flies because that was the one that had blood on it and yada yada and... Uh, professors like to come back to those stories and be like, we've been using forensic science for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, But we're going to talk about the last couple of decades of forensic science. 
So one of the biggest events in forensic science in the last couple of decades is the CSI effect. With all of these shows being on the air, juries now expect there to be DNA evidence or else. There will be no conviction without some kind of fancy laboratory science involved. Hmm. Have you guys heard about the CSI effect? Oh, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not really, to no. be honest. <laughs> but I can understand the concept of it, that you see, you know, the, 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 the typical... Um, we, have a, we have a surveillance picture of them, but it's kind of fuzzy. Can you, uh, can you clear it up a Enhance. little bit? Enhance! Yeah. <laughs> Enhance. <laughs> and zoom! <laughs> Crop! And it happens instantaneously, and then all of a sudden you have an exactly crystal clear uh, picture of the man who stole the bike. Absolutely, or and you had like four pixels to work with. Yeah. Right. So the, the CSI effect is is where they're being hacked, and like then you have two people working on one keyboard <laughs> to combat the hackers. No, no, that's the NCIS effect. <laughs> where do I put my sunglasses? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the CSI Miami effect. <laughs> I don't understand any of these references. I've watched so many seasons of CSI. <laughs> now, apparently, they have CSI Cyber, which is terrible by all accounts. Cyber? <laughs> cyber. Oh, yeah, so they, they tackle cyber <laughs> crimes. He sits around sipping yeah. cider. <laughs> they tackle cider crime. <laughs> I would watch that Somebody show. Somebody stole all the cider. <laughs> Send that guy with the sunglasses over there. <laughs> Figure it out. This isn't juice. This is cider. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Oh. So there's been an uptick of expectations, I guess, when it comes to uh, members of the jury. So what they've done to combat this, in part, is to do things like ask jurors, do you watch CSI and Bones and all of these other shows? Really? Yeah. Um, and if the answer is yes, they're, they're not selected for the jury? Well, they only get a certain number of vetoes, right? So you got to kind of... So pe- people, be- I'm sorry to interrupt, but people believe that what they see on TV in those shows is how it is in real life? Well, there are definitely people who do, but there's also, like, just more people get influenced by these shows to think that, uh, to think that forensic science is kind of this infallible thing that is going to solve uh, everyone's problems. I understand. So it's not so much they think that the DNA evidence is going to come back later on this afternoon, they think that it's... Oh, right. it's DNA. It's that, that's 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 all it is. It's exactly. done. Exactly. Okay. And it, it, nothing it, else is worth it, and stuff like that. Yeah. If there's any ambiguity, it will be solved by DNA evidence or yeah. some other sort of science. Forensic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So and you're about to tell us that is not the case. Basically, yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> I would have thought. Now, again, I'm I'm, I'm being semi serious here. I would not have thought that. I would have thought. And, and again, I well, obviously, I didn't do my research on this damn episode. Um, <laughs> But just for, and maybe that's a good thing because I can maybe sort of have a different sort of yeah. side of the of the of the issues that I would have thought the dude's DNA is at the crime scene or whatever, and we suspect that he's the dude that did it. So it's kind of not cut and dry, of course, but it seems to point in that direction. So I think the the biggest problem is just the the expectation of a higher standard of evidence that is not always possible to get. Uh, there's not always going to be. Uh, DNA. There's not always going to be hair samples, for example. Um, and that's a problem when there are 12 jurors who expect to be told, we found this guy's hair on this person. They obviously did it because there's no other reason that this person's hair would be found there. There 
is a, a feeling among a lot of people, apparently, that this has led to a higher number of acquittals. Um, but the statistics don't actually bear that out. Apparently, there are now less acquittals than ever before. People are not getting away with being accused of crimes, whether they did it or not. Uh, so that hasn't, I guess, hasn't gone in the direction that you would expect from seeing this. Because if you think like, oh, people need more evidence, then... But there's also been a, a huge uptick, as we'll talk about, in the number of people kind of talking up science that maybe isn't at the level that they want it to be. And so there has just recently been uh, some big news about uh, hair samples and all sorts of different types of forensic science that have been maybe misrepresented in the courts. <laughs> that's, uh, that's kind of a generous uh, way to phrase it, I think. <laughs> I'm a generous person. So at the scene of a crime, investigators may come across hair or other fibers. If these hairs can be tested to determine if they belong to a specific individual, this can provide very convincing evidence of a specific suspect's guilt. Conversely, if we can determine that the hairs in question were from someone else, then uh, this evidence could be exculpatory. One of the challenges with forensic analysis of hair is that hair strands themselves don't contain living cells. While the follicle that produces the hair contains live DNA, which can be isolated if the hair is uprooted, it is like pulled right out, the strands themselves are composed primarily of keratin structures. It's a type of protein uh, that contain no living cell nuclei. Once the hair has emerged from the follicle, DNA decays rapidly, uh, making DNA analysis of hair pretty much impossible. Mm. While hair strands contain no usable nuclear DNA, they do actually contain some mitochondrial DNA, uh, which does allow for a limited form of DNA fingerprinting to be done, but mitochondrial DNA analysis relies on relatively recent advances in forensics that were unavailable a few decades ago. And because of the nature of mitochondrial inheritance, results are ambiguous between members of the same maternal family. Mm -hmm. uh, testing for matches in mitochondrial DNA became routine procedure around the year 2000. Uh, prior to this, microscopic analysis was the state of the art. So when the DNA decays from the follicle, you're telling me that they can't find 50-year-old hair and go, ha-ha, it was clearly ripped out of their head and it belongs to Mr. X. No, not at all. Okay. I D was misled. DNA <laughs> itself like decays rapidly as yeah. soon as the cell experiences apoptosis, and uh, that like, that's one of the primary reasons that your hair itself doesn't contain DNA, because these cells in your hair used to be living, but are not anymore. Uh, and, as soon as uh, they get shoved under your scalp, they yeah, die. Yeah, basically. So since the 1950s, forensic scientists have been using microscopic hair analysis to determine if multiple strands of hair match. And actually, uh, it, the, the FBI adopted this, this procedure in the 50s, uh, but it was common actually as far back as the 1800s in certain regions. So microscopic hair analysis involves comparing the strands of hair under a microscope, focusing on several different attributes, including like the pattern of scale on the hair and distribution of pigment in the hair. So while a match isn't confirmation that the strands come from the same person, it is consistent with this hypothesis. And uh, it was originally meant to narrow the field of possibilities. But by the 1970s, many hair analysts claimed to be able to actually match hairs to a specific person, thereby proving the presence of a specific suspect at the crime scene. 
In July of 2013, the U.S. Department of Justice began a massive review of old cases involving microscopic hair analysis that had been referred to the FBI Crime Lab's hair unit from the mid-70s through 1999. That review is actually still in progress, with about 1,200 out of 2,500 cases remaining to be examined. But earlier this year, the FBI released its findings on the 268 trials examined so far in which hair analysis was used. The review was damning. (laughs) It concluded that in 257 of these 268 trials, that is 96%, uh, the analysts overstated the accuracy of their findings, biasing the results in favor of the prosecution. Wow. 26 of the 28 FBI analysts in these cases provided either testimony or laboratory reports that contained erroneous statements. Mm. And among the cases affected by this forensic malfeasance, 32 of the defendants were sentenced to death, 14 of whom have already been executed or have died in prison. Lovely. Yeah. So, like bite mark analysis, (laughs) which is another, (laughs) shall we say, controversial forensic (laughs) technique, uh, microscopic hair analysis relies on subjective pattern matching uh, on the part of the investigator. One of the most distressing aspects of this whole affair is that we actually have no data on the frequency with which particular characteristics of hair are distributed in the population. And there is. That's interesting because I know that we have. Uh, at least data about how often certain fingerprint details show up, like arches versus whorls or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, according to the... uh, We'll we'll link to a whole bunch of summaries of this in the show notes, including the FBI's own report. But there is also no accepted research documenting how often hair from different people might appear to be the same to a forensic investigator. Mm -hmm. I learned from CSI that carpet fibers are triangular. (laughs) so i'm sorry jim i do understand what you're saying but just to kind of be clear you're basically this basically uh this process is stating that you take a look at two or whatever pieces of hair that you're comparing to and you look at it with a microscope and it does it waves this way and so does this one so therefore it's the same is that kind of the idea i mean i'm sure there's more to it essentially yeah but you're not you're not linking anything really concrete just your own personal what you see through this microscope. Well, there are methods that these investigators have adopted, and it definitely does have uh, at least the trappings of science uh, in that there are methods that you use and there are certain things that get compared to each other, like, for instance, the way color is distributed, like the pigments in the, the, in the hair are distributed. Like you were saying. Yeah, you know, the shape of the fiber and, and like that. There are dozens of different attributes that get compared, but the idea is you find a hair at the crime scene and you have your suspect and you take one of their hairs and then you compare the two and and see how similar they look and what they've been finding is basically that you can say that this hair is consistent with the hair from our suspect but it's very misleading to say this is definitely a match this is definitely their hair yeah you have you know fbi forensic investigators and analysts basically saying there's maybe a one in 10 million chance that this isn't your suspect but we know we've got the guy Uh, or in my expert opinion after decades of research in this field is that this is definitely your suspect or whatever Ah. And I I totally understand the motivation to say things like that, because when you've looked at 
you know, a hundred thousand different samples of hair and you are looking at these two and you're like, yeah, these are definitely the same. And you, you have that bias towards like, well, if they have a suspect and his hair matches the sample, there probably was him. So, you know, and you kind of want to state your case very clearly to a jury. <laughs> right. Well, that's like mm-hmm. the whole thing that came out with fingerprint analysis. It's so subjective. You, you look at these certain points and you match them. It's somebody's subjective opinion on whether that whorl matches the whorl from mm-hmm. the crime scene. And it's you have to have like six marks of, of similarity mm-hmm. on the hand. And it's just so weird. I'd say that that this is probably a lot more subjective because we don't have data on how different or similar different hairs are mm-hmm. among different individuals. And it's interesting that since this was started in the 1950s that we don't have like a database or something by now. Yeah, I'd say that is kind of weird. It's a conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, these criticisms of microscopic hair analysis are not actually that new. It's just they are newly... Coming to the fore? Yeah, coming to the fore, I They're guess. They're hot right With now. multiple court <laughs> cases and like that. So according to University of Virginia law professor Brandon Garrett, the criminal justice system hasn't been able to self-correct to fix this massive problem that kind of everybody knows is there with this part of forensic science. Uh, because of a reliance on precedent, which admits outdated, scientifically invalid testimony at trial. According to Garrett, quote, The tools don't exist to handle systematic errors in our criminal justice system. The FBI deserves every recognition for doing something really remarkable here. The problem is there may be few judges, prosecutors, or defense lawyers who are able or willing to do anything about it. Peter Neufeld, uh, the co-director of the Innocence Project, who is involved in pushing this issue to the fore, uh, stated, quote, These findings confirm that FBI microscopic hair analysts committed widespread systematic error, grossly exaggerating the significance of their data under oath with the consequence of unfairly bolstering the prosecution's case. While the FBI and the DOJ are to be commended for bringing these errors to light and notifying many of the people adversely affected, this epic miscarriage of justice calls for a rigorous review to determine how this started almost four decades ago and why it took so long to come to light. We also need lawmakers in Washington to step up and demand research and national standards to prevent the exaggeration of results in reports and in testimony by crime lab analysts." So in light of these findings, the DOJ and the FBI committed to working with the Innocence Project to take the following steps, and I'm I'm quoting from the FBI's report here. Conduct an independent investigation of the FBI laboratory protocols, practices, and procedures to determine how this occurred and why it was allowed to continue for so long. Continue aggressive measures to review the process to determine whether additional steps could be taken to secure the transcripts and or lab reports and review the hundreds of remaining cases that may contain invalid scientific statements. And strongly encourage the states again to conduct their own independent reviews where its examiners were trained by the FBI. Because we know that the FBI was not doing a great job. (laughs) And the FBI actually had the responsibility of training forensic investigators uh, at the state level. Microscopic hair analysis was deemed highly unreliable by a 2009 National Academy of Sciences report on forensic science. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, this even at that time, it was not a new criticism, but it was, uh, it was new for the National Academy of Sciences to report on it. But even today, some jurisdictions continue to use microscopic hair analysis because mitochondrial DNA testing is deemed too expensive or too time-consuming. Mm. 
According to Innocence Project data, 74 of the 329 wrongful convictions overturned by DNA evidence involve faulty hair evidence. And it's way cheaper so to just incarcerate people. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> so in the report that it released, the FBI, quote, agreed to provide free DNA testing where there is either a court order or a request for testing by the prosecution. Additionally, in federal cases, DOJ will not raise procedural objections such as statute of limitations and procedural default claims in response to defendants' petitions seeking a new fair trial because of the faulty evidence. Um... However, it is going to be up to individual states to determine whether they decide to follow the DOJ's mm. uh, recommendations here. That always works out well. Meanwhile, yeah. <laughs> uh, many of those convicted in these trials, sometimes on the back of microscopic hair analysis alone, remain in prison. Yikes. And there are several state jurisdictions where actually the state is fighting against uh, new trials. Mm-hmm. They're expensive, right? Yeah. And, and people are invested in saying, "No, we got we got the guy. We mm-hmm. got the guy." Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and they want their you know records of successful prosecutions or whatever to hold up. And yeah, ugh, it's also gross. And for-profit prisons. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that doesn't help either. Man, I don't want to. No, actually, I'm not even going to get into it. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a whole other show. It was last us. show. Yeah. <laughs> about how effed up that is. That's. Uh, yeah. yeah, talk to Brendan. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> so because of CSI, one of the most well-known fields of forensic science is forensic entomology, because the main character on the show CSI was a forensic entomologist, and so he could just look at a body that had been uh, dug up and be like, oh yeah, he's been dead for 3.4 days, and... This was his cause of death because there are this kind of bug present. How accurate would you say that is, Ian? Oh, bugs. I thought it was words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fren- Forensic etymology. Etymology. I'm uh, sorry. Get it? Words. I, I got you, man. Uh, <laughs> and um, that's the research. Yeah. <laughs> and that is it. Uh, well, I mean, I think that it's fairly obvious, like any one of these things that, I mean, trying to judge a crime scene by how many bugs are crawling all over the person... No one can say that that has that's an exact science. <laughs> I mean, did Gil Grissom lie to me? I don't know who that is. I'm going to go with yes. Okay, Gil Grissom is the guy in the original CSI. Yeah, oh. the guy who was played by Corey in uh, CSI Moose Jaw. Ah, see, yes, <laughs> relate it back to that, and I'm okay. I kind of, I, I kind of know. Let's just relate everything back to local theater. Yeah, Yay! yes. Yeah, back to the dinner theater that Ian and I used to work at. That's correct. <laughs> so uh, you mean, can't tell. Oh, it's well the, by the. Size of those maggots, that guy's been dead for 17 hours or whatever. Yeah. I, I, I think that that's sort of, you know, he's dead and there's bugs crawling on him. That's about as much as you can get. <laughs> Forensic entomology, everybody. I'm getting that on a tombstone. Not mine, somebody else. Well, I think what the driving message of this episode is going to be is that these things can be useful, but they're often overstated. And they often right. are exagger. their effects are exaggerated. Right. The different types of bugs will tell you sort of a range of how long somebody has been dead based on the stages of the bugs, life cycles. So we're talking like, cycles. like maggots versus flies versus... Versus beetles. beetles. And, okay. Yeah. So the longer versus, someone's been dead, you may be able to tell by what kind of what kind of bugs and at what point in their gestation. Yeah, by the time right. the, the bugs start evolving into you know your your, your fish and then your <laughs> you know your amphibians and bugs uh, into fish yeah. really, Jim. 
But what stage? Yeah. What stage do we get the death's head moths down the throat? That is uh, now. the James Gum stage. Yeah. Wait, I mean, we can use their life cycles to tell within like a certain range of error and looking into the weather and stuff as well. Because if it was really cold, obviously there's not going to be as much bug activity. Hmm. Um, so, like in Canada, between <laughs> September and uh, you know April, yeah, zero there, there evidence. Is, yeah, there's no evidence yeah. of, of this kind because there are entomology here is part time gig at best, or uh, <laughs> yeah, and the rest of the time it's mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, yeah, mosquitoes. You could tell. Yeah. But in that case, they were also the murderers. So, yeah. yes. I swear I saw one carry off a cat this weekend. Yeah. Cause of death: exsanguination. <laughs> But yeah, it's not an exact science, but it can tell us some helpful things. And people think that it's a lot more useful than it is. <laughs> well, I, obviously. I mean, because there's so... Okay, I mean, if you're talking about other living beings that don't follow our human timescale necessarily of days, um, you know, who's to say that a, a family of maggots or whatever couldn't get into that corpse in two hours? You know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's there's so many more factors if you're dealing with other living beings that have their own motivations for going after that corpse. I'm just imagining like a family, like the maggots on like a camping trip. All right, kids, new corpse, we're moving in. I, I was picturing their really great estate agent who got them through yeah. escrow that quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and we some, got early possession, guys. And for some reason, in my head, they're from the '50s, so the dad has a fedora. Yes, and, uh, yeah, I was imagining. And the, mom's got, and the mom's got pearls and, uh, and wearing maggots. high heels. How are they ca- they're still carrying suitcases. <laughs> also, maggots are the kids. You know, the, the, the parents would be flushed. You're right. Yeah. You're right. No, no, no. Like, That's that does true. make more sense, but, <laughs> but it's funnier, funnier if even yes. the dad and mom are maggots. <laughs> they, they married young. <laughs> yes, right. Preferably you Muppets. Messed up. <laughs> okay, let's, okay, we're done. <laughs> That's it. We've covered it. I'm sorry. So that's forensic <laughs> entomology. That's it. Yeah, that bugs. <laughs> I I haven't watched any of these shows really. My my like crime based shows were Law and Order, Woo-hoo! limited to those only. So I actually hadn't heard of forensic entomology, and I'm a little bit astounded that that's a real job. <laughs> like, <laughs> it yeah. sounds it sounds like something that the pathologist would do. Like that's how that it started I can out. See. But to be its own thing seems like TV movie land. Yeah, well, yeah, to, like it sounds really like one of those castle the mentalist things. Like this entomologist really wanted to be a police officer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she managed to to convince the the detective to to take her on. She well, was the mayor, yeah. and the mayor let her go. Right. And <laughs> and usually it'll be a specialty of somebody who also does other stuff. Right. Okay. That so, makes a lot more yeah. sense. You'll yeah. become a forensic scientist and then specialize in, in entomology. For My former Sorry. supervisor at Mad Science was actually an entomologist who is working at Mad Science because she can't get a job anywhere else. So that's the state of science right now in Winnipeg. Yay. Actually, speaking of Mad Science, we have a, a really cool kit that is supposed to introduce forensic science to kids, and it actually has one of the central themes of it is this bite mark analysis, because it's the cookie caper, and someone broke into Mr. Baker's uh, kitchen and took a big bite out of his big, fat, chewy chocolate chip cookie and smashed the frame and stole his recipe, and it was 
bake-off day in the town, and so this was this big scandal, and so somebody had to solve it right away. And we actually, I'm sorry, the baker's name was Mr. Mr. Baker? Baker? Yeah, they're not super creative. That doesn't seem right. <laughs> Little on the nose. I don't trust that <laughs> for a Baker. second. It's for kindergartners, okay? Uh, well, okay. We'll, <laughs> I mean, see, we'll see about that. There are some really cool things that we do in the kit, like um, paper chromatography. Uh, so we put uh, different kinds of ink on two strips of coffee filter paper and uh, just dunk it in some water. And you can uh, you can try it at home. If you have coffee filters, you just cut them into strips and put like a ballpoint pen on one and permanent marker on another one or whatever and you just put them in a little bit of water and the water will uh, leach its way up the coffee filter via um, the wicking effect Mm -hmm. and the ink will separate and so you can tell what kind of ink was uh, or what kind of inks make up the marker or whatever and so you can differentiate between different pens so that's pretty cool yeah that's neat but uh, something to do with the baby. <laughs> <laughs> a few years. She's already gotten permanent marker on our hardwood floor. So, oh. yeah. But now you know who did it. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Jim. <laughs> it matched the marker in Jim's pocket. It wasn't here after all. For what it's worth, with the bugs, I do want to be dropped off in a body farm after I die. Mm-hmm. She's I, made this very clear. I'm, I want the bugs to eat me. Hmm. I want to be used for science in mm-hmm. that way. <laughs> so first we have to find one. <laughs> yeah, because I really don't want to have my eternal remains in Kentucky. What's a bug farm besides the obvious, those two words put together? <laughs> it's a bunch of dead bodies lying around and they count how long it takes the blowflies or botflies to lay their little maggots. And they, they study how bodies decompose in different circumstances. Yep. So if they're... For under- what purpose? For forensics, basically. Yeah. So that they can later, if they find a body that was dumped in a certain circumstance, they can compare it to data that they have. Huh. I had no idea that that such a thing existed on this planet of ours. (laughs) You don't watch enough TV. I evidently not. (laughs) That was from Forensic Files or some some forensic show or American Justice or whatever. I'm like, yes, if I can't have a Viking funeral. So there are even more fun, discredited uh, forensic methods out there and Laura's going to tell us about a fun uh, ballistics related one. Yes. So this one is called comparative bullet lead analysis and this was actually um, a large part of um, forensics for about 40 years starting in the mid to late 60s and then it ended in officially in 2004. Um, and it was used in more than 2,000 cases as, uh, as evidence and testimony. So the idea behind this is that um, it was a chemical analysis of a bullet or bullet fragment that was found um, in the victim, <laughs> presumably, or at the scene of the crime. And it's comparing the chemical makeup of the, the lead and the bullet to another source, like a bullet in possession of a suspect, for example. And so the idea here, or the assumption was that if the chemical makeups are the same, then likely the suspect, or that's another bit of evidence that the suspect was in fact guilty um, of the crime there. And so they thought that different bullets were chemically different enough to make that... so just a little bit of a background Meaning here. Like brands of bullets? So this is this is what's <laughs> important okay, I'm here. I'm sorry, so carry on. Bullets I um, 
for a long time, bullets have been made from old car batteries. Really? Yes, that's where most of the... <laughs> because what else do you use lead for, <laughs> really, right? And so it doesn't... There's They're so small, and it's... I mean, it is a large market, but not a huge market, so... They they take um, old car batteries and they take the lead from them and uh, they make the bullets out of that. Now, the car batteries have to meet very strict regulations, so they have different other trace elements in there because car batteries need them and for bullets it doesn't matter if there are. So what they did is they looked at the amounts of these trace metals in the um, the bit of evidence, the, the bullet fragment, and then compare it to the, the piece, uh, the bullet or, or whatnot from the suspect there. There's a couple of assumptions that go along with this. Um, one, there's the assumption that the amount of the different trace metals that's in the bullet or the bullet fragment found at the scene of the crime is in fact representative of all of the metal, all of the lead that was used for all of the bullets in the same batch of bullets. So it, that tiny little bit, and we're talking tiny bits in some cases, is in fact representative. So if you have a match, it's likely the same. Um, And the other one is that no two batches of metal used for bullets would have the same makeup of these trace metals. Well, and I guess another assumption would be that the batches would be small enough that there there would be a small likelihood of many people having that same Yeah, so, yeah, that's not, like, a main assumption, but that definitely goes along with it, and and that's a criticism to this. And there's also an assumption that that the person whose gun it supposedly is, because the, from what I am now, I don't know much about guns, but I can imagine that the type of bullet that you buy is the same, but you may be able to have two different brands of bullet in your gun at the same time. Is that not correct? Yes. Like, you buy a bunch of bullets oh. from Walmart, and then you're down to one bullet from Walmart, and then you fill the rest of your gun with bullets yeah. from Canadian Tire, which are a different <laughs> brand. So you could shoot that last bullet and kill the guy, and then it's like, well, what? The, I, these are obviously Canadian Tire. And then Canadian you have Tire. none left. Yeah, these yeah. are obviously Canadian yeah. Tire brand bullets, so they're not... Uh, <laughs> Not guilty. Yeah. Give like Santa, save like Scrooge. Absolutely. But I'm, seri- I'm, so, I'm serious, though, because like, no, no, they're no, trying no, to match it sure. up to that guy's gun, sure. which has the bullets in it, but there's no... So, is there any sort of... Uh, like it's, a, it's assumed that the rest of the bullets in the gun are the same brand and type of bullet? So you've all really identified a lot of the major <laughs> issues with this. So the first two assumptions that I mentioned, while these seem sort of logical and reasonable, there's no evidence to show that that is in fact the case um there is only one lab in the u.s that does this testing and it was the fbi lab so there is no one else doing any independent research so for 40 years the only lab that could provide this evidence was providing all of these yes this is great evidence it's the whole story sounds a lot like what jem was discussing except the FBI had a lot of criticism, including internal criticism from former analysts, that finally they allowed a um, National Academy of Science board to come in and do internal investigations and found that there's a lot of problems and a lot of problems with uh, the assumptions that are made based on the evidence there. Even then, the FBI put out press releases that really spun it to make it sound like, no, this is great evidence. No, don't retry any of these cases where people have been Mm -hmm. convicted. No, no, no. But then finally in 2004, they stopped using it. So I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. What I'm getting from this is the FBI is totally not to be trusted. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So with this case here, unlike some of the other forensics, the the chemical analysis that happens on 
the different samples is is sound. They're following proper up-to-date techniques with the best technology. And so for them to identify, okay, this has this amount of nickel and this amount of, of uh, titanium, and I'm just pulling different metals out of my brain here, and then to say, oh, yes, this one has the same amounts, that's that part of it is fine. The issue that came from it was the conclusions that were drawn here and the conclusions in context of the assumptions that we already talked about. So, um, like Ashlyn was saying, with the sample sizes, sometimes in court it was represented that these could be, that yes, the batches are very small, so it would be unlikely that they would be in the case. However, we know that depending on the manufacturer, one batch of molten lead can make anywhere from 12,000 bullets to millions of bullets. And they can be made sometimes just for one type of of um, a gun, and other times they can be made for every type of firearm made by a particular manufacturer. Wow. So if you have a teeny tiny fragment, <laughs> you don't necessarily know what caliber of, of bullet that came from. You don't know what kind of weapon it is. And if everything that, let's say, Remington makes made all of their bullets one year out of one giant batch of lead, well, that's thousands, hundreds, even millions of, of firearms that you have to try to put together there. Mm. And then the owners. And even on the low end, like 12,000 bullets is still a lot of cases of ammunition. Right. Right. Um, it is a lot of ammunition. So, and then there's also, too, because there's so little outside evidence to say that even that those tiny fragments are representative of an enormous batch of metals is... There's just not evidence to claim that. It's may not, it may be true, it may not be true, but there just isn't the evidence there. So much like Jem was saying, the analysts that were in court were really overplaying this. So the tests, the way that the tests, um, the chemical analysis are run, they should come up with the answer that either the, the sample and the evidence are chemically indistinguishable, which means that they are the same metal, or they are chemically distinguishable, which means that they are not the same metal. That is what they should come from. However, when they look back on the cases where the expert analysts testified, they would say anything from, yes, they are chemically indistinguishable, to these two things came from the same box. They were made on the same day. These two bullets were in the same box. That is a huge That's a big jump. Leap. <laughs> and especially if we know that one batch could have made a million bullets, that is a huge assumption to make there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question is, though, how many maggots were on the box? <laughs> <laughs> and how much hair was inside the box? Right. That's right. Exactly. More after the box was used to bludgeon. <laughs> if you had those two things along with the bullet fragment, then you're making a case. Right. It exactly. was gem. So this was... These these testimonies given by these experts in court is sort of a symptom of a bigger thing. They also found that while the chemical portion of the analysis was very concrete and sound, there were um, there was chaining of evidence and there wasn't proper blinding going on during the um, uh, analysis process to lead to um, potentially false convictions or moving towards one certain area rather Mm -hmm. than another. So there was a lot of problems with the way that the data was being interpreted. And because it's so confusing and it's not definitive, it was really recommended to stop using it um, because 
generally people in the jury and judges and lawyers and that don't really know what it means to just say, well, it's chemically indistinguishable. Well, how, they don't know how to weigh that, right. especially if they don't know that, mm-hmm. you know, this was a tiny batch of bullets versus that was an enormous batch of bullets. Do we have artisanal bullets? Uh, maybe in Oregon. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, Oregon. I'm sure you're lovely. You're a lovely place. <laughs> With lovely handcrafted bullets. Yes. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I, well, yeah. That seems to be the theme of this. Again, kind of going to the theme of the science initially seems to be sound. Right. That you know, yes, these two things are chemically the same. Okay, great. You know, the 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 bugs are you know no longer maggots; they're flies. We know how long it takes for a magnet to turn into a fly, so we know at least that. Okay. Uh, but then to draw, you know, the hair seems similar when you look at it in a microscope. It's, it's, I guess it's the, it's the conclusion that the person makes in the, the, I don't know if it's ego or where it comes from to sort of say like, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a hair analysis, uh, expert and, uh, I'd bet my house that it's Jem Newman that did it. You know, it is, I guess, is that where like they just, cause they don't want to be wrong, especially if it's things like rape and, you know, you know, child abuse and stuff. People in the in the community want that person found immediately, and whether it's that guy or not, they're going to convict someone. And if they can use somewhat scientific evidence that seems somewhat credible, and they can you know send someone down the river, I guess they will. Yeah, so that's uh, basically our last segment of the show. Damn it! <laughs> Cut this out, Ian. <laughs> no, that was good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're done. Yeah. Bye. Good night. So. <laughs> Sorry. Maybe yeah. Ab- absolutely. But yeah. Um, it all comes down to people are overstating how reliable this stuff is. <laughs> right. And this was often used, um, sometimes in addition to, but often in absence of um, ballistics fingerprinting, which is something that is often talked about on a lot of those other shows, mm-hmm. um, those those crime shows. Rifling w- marks, right? Yes, that's the rifling marks. So if ever you're watching one of those shows and they're talking about um, there's marks on the bullet or on the shell casing or something like that, That's due to um, rifling marks, as Lauren mentioned, which are generally sort of like a threading that's on the inside. Grooves. Grooves. Yeah, it's on the inside of the barrel of the gun, and it helps the bullet fly better, more accurately, faster, etc., etc., and it leaves a particular pattern of of marks on the outside of the gun. And so you can, um, there is... On the outside of the bullet. Oh, sorry. Thank you. On the outside (laughs) of the bullet. So you can actually use that to really narrow down your search, especially what type of weapon you're looking for. Um, Mm. Because, of course, the same bullet could be used in multiple different weapons. So, like, certain brands are known to have threading that goes in one direction, Mm -hmm. or some in the other, or some are known to have threading that goes in a a certain length, and others shorter, some longer. So you can can really narrow down your search with that kind of thing. And then, yeah, so that is actually something that does, in fact, happen. And then every every firearm will have its own pattern as well as it is used, as I love as the, the Wikipedia article put it, normal wear and tear. Because <laughs> that's something you want a gun to have, I guess. Everyone... You want to use your gun so often that it does have wear <laughs> exactly. and tear. Not only when you need it, but every day. Every day. Uh, nice you know morning. when you have that, that good, your favorite gun. Yeah, you know, yeah your favorite. Rustic. You want to really break it in. Yeah, yeah the one that you just... Yeah. Pop on every day Vera. and just go out. Yeah. Vera. Well, <laughs> even, uh, even 
from the machining when they're made, they'll have a little bit different grooves yeah, exactly. one done from another. Exactly. So between the the manufacturing of it, the man, like the the machining process, the particular um, rifling that goes into it, and then just each gun as it ages and and works, it'll develop a different pattern. So hmm. you can become more and more specific with that kind of thing there. So it is, that is pretty interesting. However, that's not foolproof either because people, knowing that this is the case, will purposely try to change the marks on the inside of their weapons. Or, for example, if you have a shotgun and you saw it off, that is going to change the marks that are on the casings because now the barrel is half as long or however it is. So it's not going to look like it, the, the casings don't look like they did if it was an original size. Or if you use something like a silencer, now it's longer, that has different machining as well, so that's going to change it as well. Hmm. So, again, it can really Who help knew? you narrow you the su- focus. You're such an expert on firearms. <laughs> <laughs> Wikipedia is a glorious thing. We have one of those uh, bed gun safes, if yeah. anybody has seen that. No. What? <laughs> oh, they're, they're terrifying. Like, it's, First uh, of it's all, basically what? designed to... Hold on a second. <laughs> Go back to the beginning. What did you say? <laughs> Uh, they have a bed gun you, safe. You too. No, we no, don't we actually. Don't. Okay. <laughs> no, we're joking. Okay. But they're, they're like the as seen on TV. Okay. It's so you can Sorry. Spring, spring out of bed with like a rifle at yeah. the ready so you can more easily shoot your family members when they go like, for water yeah, in the middle you, of the night. Spring out of bed and I don't remember mm, if you like timely. flip the mattress up or if you just like push the whole mattress over and there's your gun locker right under your bed. It's wow. pretty impressive. I understand. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, was like, I, I didn't think you... It's like, you guys have this? I, <laughs> I've known you for 12, Sarcasm. 15 years, and you guys have a gun rack under your bed? Uh, also, I do want to just point out, because it came up, we recognize that a silencer is not actually a thing that exists for guns. Uh, you can have a suppressor, but it doesn't actually really <laughs> okay, well, work that the way you see on Okay, well, that was on the Wikipedia TV. page, so I'm blaming Wikipedia. Expletive. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, silencer. silencers are basically an invention of the movies. <laughs> Anyway. Yeah, suppressors, suppressors are a thing, but it's not really, you know. They don't anyway. really suppress the sound. Something for another another episode. <laughs> and, and sawed-off shotguns don't hide the marks. It just makes well, the make gun more badass. Is what <laughs> <it> <laughs> Science. I'm always terrified to, to saw off a shotgun. Like, I, I know if you don't have a bullet in it. In your many experiences of sawing off shotguns. <laughs> Every week. time I buy a shotgun, I have to ask myself, do I saw this one or not? And always, yes. It's a conversation I had with my father about his grandfather's guns. He said, should I saw one off just to try it? I'm like, what would we, like, would we actually use a saw? Would we use, like, a (laughs) piping? You know, the things you use for cutting piping? What? I would imagine there's there's a company in the states that sells a sawed off shotgun kit. (laughs) Go on Google, you'll find that shit immediately. I'm sure. I'm positive a hacksaw would be just fine. Okay, but But you got to find you got to get America America's choice. Sawed off shotgun kit. What if you do it like diagonally? Do you, do you have to put it in a miter box? Yeah, it, well, I, I, I assume, <laughs> I I assume it's like oh it's like gosh. wait when you get like the, the the personal loaves of bread at uh, at like old spaghetti factory, you want to saw it off at an angle to make sure that you maximize your. Uh, your what if you butter make butter, butter surface? Surf. So it's it's a double barrel, cut one short and one long, yeah. and kind of get, yeah, a, get the best of both worlds. That's yeah. what I was wondering. Like, would I be able to use one of those pipe cutters for a double barrel? I don't barrel? suggest you try. No. <laughs> The really takeaway is that I didn't get to use the fabulous pun that I thought of at the start of Laura's segment. We got to shoot that theory down. Aww. Aww. 
that theory obviously didn't work out for us because since they stopped using it in 2004. But hey, only con- begrudgingly, remember? Yeah, but congratulations only on them stopping using it though. Yeah, yes, so, so we're yes. talking about the chemical lead analysis. Yeah, the chemi- the, that's the, the compositional um, bullet lead analysis. Yeah, ballistics are still a thing that are used, and that is fine. But the uh, the lead analysis part of it is stop uh, is not used for the last ten years, which okay. is a good thing. Yeah. But, obviously, DNA evidence is the be-all and end-all of forensic science, right? Damn straight. Nothing wrong with that. No, you Always can never screw that for up. for real. Yeah. We don't have any sort of prosecutor's dilemmas or anything. No. <laughs> it's all great. Tell us more, Lauren. DNA testing has been around for 30 years. Happy birthday, DNA testing! <laughs> yes. So it was first developed by Alec Jeffries and used in 1985. I don't want to really get into the backgrounds of what DNA is and DNA testing because that's a whole bunch of research that I didn't do. So it was first developed in 1985 and they've had a whole bunch of different types of DNA testing. Um, You're used to to need like buckets of the stuff in order to, (laughs) well, swabs. You don't need an entire bucket. You're not pulling around your DNA slop buckets. Uh. Finally, a crime where we have a bucket of the guy's blood. (laughs) We were waiting for this day. And they didn't convict OJ either. Yeah. <laughs> now we can use much smaller amounts of DNA, Yes, right? yes we can. We so can use... Amounts cheap. that are more likely to be found? Yeah. Nice! Pretty much. And we have a much better hit rate, I guess would be the word to use. Instead of saying, you know, it's one in 500 million. That way, you know, there's however many other people on the planet that they could have it. And that's called the uh, prosecutor's dilemma, saying, well, there's six other people in the world that could have this DNA. So juries were not convicting based on that. Really? Yeah. Wow. Because they were saying it's six other people in the world. It wasn't solid. That doesn't really happen a lot anymore because we, we have a lot more. We can say, yeah, it was this guy in one in seven quadrillion. Or well, his identical twin. Yes, that was something else I was going to. <laughs> the, with that, I mean, we don't make the entire genetic profile of everybody that we test, right? We, we look for a, a very small, specific section and look at the different mutations in that section, and that's how we uh, make the match or not. And that's why yeah. it could have been, you know, up to six other people, theoretically, could have this DNA. Yeah, but would those six other people have a motive or a method right. or... Yes. Or even live on the continent? Yeah. Well, like, it's basic Bayesian statistics, too, right? I mean, those six other people were not suspects in the crime yeah. for a reason, right? So your, your prior probability is a lot lower and like that. Yeah. Sorry, Jem said the word statistics and my brain just shut off. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, Bayesian statistics. Dead. <laughs> uh now people are, Jim had mentioned the Innocence Project earlier, and they're using uh, DNA uh, testing to get people out of jail. Mm. Um, so if people who were wrongly convicted for a bunch of other reasons can be exonerated by DNA evidence. I mean, that's not as common as convicting somebody on the DNA evidence. So any- how does one get wrongly convicted in, in a case with DNA evidence. What's the most likely cause of where where's the breakdown that they that they get the wrong person or what have you? Well, like the DNA evidence can be uh, cuz it's not the one in 6 that we just No. Discussed. There'd be the say it was a rape and murder. Somebody else could have 
raped the person beforehand and left their DNA all over the place and didn't murder them. <laughs> right. oh, or so that had, lady was raped by one person, then killed by, or, I shouldn't or, say or lady, had, that person was had consensual, yeah, sex. consensual sex. But the and, example and, that you used was rape no, and murder. I know, I'm raped just, by one person, killed by another. That worst was a rough day, day ever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay, but you can also, you could, and this is graphic, unfortunately, but you can have consensual sex and then be raped. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then be murdered. Yeah. Right. Or, yeah. Whatever. Or, or whatever. We can even cut murder out of the equation. Sure. I, I'm be- sorry. Yes. Yeah. That is true, Jam, that you could indeed have those two things happen in the same time and have two sets of DNA tracts yeah. from two different yeah. people. But but like you also have the case where d- the DNA testing was not done for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. It was deemed too expensive. It was collected and it wasn't filed properly. Or there was a screw up. There's I read one thing of uh, it was a screw up that they were finding this woman's DNA on a bunch of different crime scenes and she turned out to be a woman who was working on the place working at the place where they made the swabs yeah and oh, it got contamination contaminated gosh, on all of these awful. swabs yeah. so contamination say, is a major problem they yeah. say they're sterile but they they're they not. they cannot guarantee that they are not coded in somebody yeah. else's dna yep wow um, you also have cases where dna is collected but it is never tested because the like the person who the suspect is convinced to plead guilty for whatever yep. reason they get a plea mm-hmm. deal or there is you know some sort of malfeasance on the part of the either the prosecution or the the uh, detectives working the case, uh, which results in a conviction even before the DNA yeah. analysis comes in. There's something, um, and this was done long before there was DNA evidence, but in the Manson murders, um, the uh, forensic scientist, because they, they were doing Oshaloni tests at the moment instead of um, DNA testing, and that was just to test if it was human and then to get the typing. Uh, they only tested certain points out of the these giant pools of blood that were all over Sharon Tate's house. And when they went back later, some of them were actually amalgams of other people's blood. Like, it was more than one type of blood in the... Yeah. Mm. yeah. I, I guess, sorry, I, I guess what I was asking was that, in theory, should everybody have their head screwed on straight if you're, if a suspect's DNA is on the victim, that's a fairly... I'd say it's more... Con- are we saying... What are we saying? Are we saying that's more concrete than some of the other things that we've discussed in this podcast? It's, Probably, it's, yeah. It's a yeah. little more cut and dry than yeah. than maggots yeah. or hair or whatever. Yeah, a little yeah. bit, but there are still so many problems. I mean, um, especially because most crime is committed by people who know each other. There are lots yeah. of reasons that somebody's DNA might be on somebody. Mm. Even just interacting with each other in this room, looking at each other and talking, we could get saliva on each other, which grosses me out so much, I can't <laughs> even tell you. Oh, <laughs> be glad you weren't in the, in the front row at our play. I was. We were. Yeah. <laughs> I were saw coded. some flying saliva. Yeah. <laughs> right now I am touching Ashlyn's arm with my finger. She is now coded in my DNA. <laughs> Not that she wasn't before. <laughs> I am claimed. <laughs> but uh, you know, all sorts of these different interactions will result in DNA Good getting point. on each other. That's yeah. fair. Yeah, that's fair. I was going to say, yeah, we've you know, all kinds of people's DNA all over you from just semi-normal interactions. Or, or in your home. And, and as discussed on the uh, previous episode, poop. Poop. Poop everywhere. <laughs> poop. There you go. Yeah, and as we get better and better at analyzing smaller and smaller samples, that becomes more and more of a problem. Yeah, and... I mean, I'm looking at these pop filters on these mics, and I'm wondering how much DNA and, and how many sauce. different. So my, there was, there was yeah. barbecue sauce on my pop filter last time. But I'm, I'm serious. I'm Long looking at how much. Long and McQuaid, where the music begins. 
But think of how many people have used these rental systems before. It's it's a good point. It's yeah. a good point. I guess I was just, yeah, like I was just sort of mm-hmm. trying to say that it seems to me in my limited scope of what, you know, my understanding of forensic science would be is that that seems to be a fairly, a little bit more, you know, legit than some of the other ones we've discussed. Yeah, if, and there's quite a few instances where it's, it's so cut and dried with DNA. It's just, this is what it is. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I'm, I'm assuming there have been instances, there's been cases where it's like, oh yeah, yeah, that guy, you know, or that girl, that person, that person did it because their, you know, their DNA is all over this other person they're you know and it, it seems very clear that and they have a motive and blah blah blah, blah. Mm-hmm. right especially in, in certain types of cases like stabbings a lot of the times you'll cut yourself while you're trying to stab somebody or it so, could be a knife fight yeah if you find you know, somebody's blood on in somebody else's wounds that's a pretty good indication yeah because yeah. <laughs> the only speaking of blood and i'll just digress very very slightly i did watch the only sort of "Quote unquote," sort of detective-y type of show that I did watch was Dexter. Yeah, oh, which God. is not about the well, yeah, it's not, but it's not, it's not like so forensicy. It's more about the character, obviously. Mm-hmm. But he's a blood splatter analysis, and it seems spatter, spatter, yeah, splatter is a better word. He's a blood spatter I hate you, Jim analyst. Newman. Um, yeah, or whatever the hell he is. <laughs> yeah. I'm just mad at you that you have to correct hey, hey, my. Uh, yep. Do you have a point? <laughs> So these 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 muffins are really good. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, eh, held it. Let's just doesn't matter. I'm sorry. That's okay. It's Jim! gone. It's I have I have a pretty cool. I'm just going to read it straight from Wikipedia because that's the sort of show we're doing. Okay. <laughs> it's faked DNA evidence. Woo! Fake. Yes. Hmm. So in one case, a criminal even planted fake DNA evidence in his own body. John Schneeberger raped one of his sedated patients in 1992 and left semen on her underwear. Police drew what they believed to be Schneeberger's blood and compared its DNA against the crime scene semen DNA on three occasions, never showing a match. It turned out that he had surgically inserted a Penrose drain in his arm and filled it with foreign blood and anticoagulants. I totally saw that on Law and Order. I totally did. <laughs> yeah, because Law and Order does that about yeah, six months after the thing the happens. Yes, rip the yes, headlines. Yes, yes that's... super lazy writing. <laughs> that is so messed up. Yeah, that I is... just it wow. jumped out at me. I was like, wow, that you, takes commitment. You know, you would think that. Why wouldn't you just do a better job of not leaving semen on their underwear? Why would you just not like, rape your well, patients? Yes, I, well, <laughs> obviously this is the best choice, but clearly he is not a good person. Second best, hide your tracks better. Well, you'd think if, like, if you're gonna go to all that trouble, you'd think that you would have thought of the easier thing to do. Yeah. Not like, I'm going to give myself an operation and put in someone else's blood in my arm. Like, that seems like... That is... Wow. Oh, that was a Canadian case. Oh! (laughs) Yeah. Well, and there's also now concerns about how easy it is to do the kinds of genetic engineering where you can just make DNA to leave places. Yeah. Like, it's actually pretty easy to just construct DNA now. Huh. Well, you have to have, you know, the ability... Well, I mean, you have to have some undergraduate biology training. And well, that's really and it. a bit of a lab. Yeah. Right? Are you saying... I have are, these things. <laughs> Ashley. Are, are you saying... So when we are all convicted of... Uh-huh. <laughs> of crimes against podcasting. <laughs> so you're saying you could... You, they can they can replicate someone else's DNA or just gen, DNA in general? Both. Wow. Is, we live in the future. That's yeah. terrifying, man. So what kind of... 
like, what is it in, right? Because it can't just be, is it just DNA strands that they have in, like, water? Or do they have it in cells, like altered bacterial cells? Or do they make it into, like, skin cells? Like, yeah, that's how a good do question. you do that? Well, you could, um, for example, take somebody's DNA and then replicate it a million times if you only had a drop of it or whatever. Yeah. And then just mix that DNA in with some... Uh, like blood that's been heated to the point where all of the proteins would be uh, denatured, I guess. I'm just th- thinking this up out of thin air. So, sure and so are. if you mix that up together, <laughs> uh, then anybody who tested it, um, I mean, the first step is basically to just centrifuge the crap out of it. So they wouldn't even notice that the DNA wasn't in the cells itself. Yeah. Hmm, okay. Everything's ripped apart when yeah, they and test I it. And I could be totally making this up and yeah. doing it all wrong, but. Okay. Because I'm just wondering. Yeah, because. Yeah, Usually the DNA comes from, like, cells and blood Yeah, and but, stuff, I mean, you right? don't actually so, look at the individual cells. Yeah, no, and... no Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So like, like you, you Scary. T- you test it chemically, right? Yeah, you yeah. extract yeah. the DNA. investigating the strand itself under, like, a Right, right. No, but what... Microscope, and it's, it's actually it's written on the it, cell. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know that. You extract no, the DNA, and then you put it through gel electrophoresis and see all the pretty colorful bands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's a fun process. <laughs> I guess what I'm getting at is, like, it. I feel like it would be kind of weird if all of a sudden there's, like, a whole big splash of some DNA, but there's nothing else. Like, there's no wound, there's no blood, there's no, like, bodily right. fluids. It's just, like... That's what I'm saying. You would mix it with blood. Like right. Like, so I'm, ho- yeah. I'm just wondering how they would do that, because it... Yeah. yeah. As all. But, yeah, basically we live in the future. <laughs> no, we know. No. <laughs> <laughs> and the future is scary. Yes. But yes. we all have smartphones, and that's pretty cool. <laughs> They're scary. Too. <laughs> they are scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we've been kind of down on forensics this show, and we've talked a lot about the problems of forensics. But the question that we want to kind of get back to is: Is this something that we should still be using, and something that we should be trusting in our court system? And I mean, I could put my two cents out first, I guess. Um, a lot Do of it. what I, <laughs> what I think is that. These are all very useful tools. The 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 hair analysis, the DNA analysis, the the bugs that we find on bodies, everything those are all tools that we can use, but it's really important that people and prosecutors and scientists stop overstating how effective they are and people yeah. stop expecting them to be a magic bullet. <laughs> and, and we really need yeah. we really, like this is an applied science, mm-hmm. right? Applied science useful, it's it's universal, but um it, it you know, it's it's not the same as uh you know, formulating an hypothesis and testing it in, you know, a physics laboratory. Mm-hmm. Uh it's a lot messier and we need to know what our false positive and false negative rates are when we're doing these tests and it is important that the forensic investigators not know specifically or or uh so one of the recommended improvements is uh doing at least some form of blinding on forensic investigators in the same way that this is recommend that it's recommended that we do this when you're doing like a um, suspect out of a lineup yeah. uh routine where w- when uh police are interviewing a victim and they have a, a perpetrator lineup, and they say, "Okay, pick out the the person who did it." Often, the you have almost like a clever Hans thing going on, where the where the police officers know who the real suspect is, and they will either overtly or accidentally clue in uh, the 
the witness to who the real suspect is or the victim who yeah. who is going through the lineup. And, um, you know, we all know that memories are very fallible, and that's a big problem in the criminal justice system. A- and, it, you know, it's not an unknown problem, and people are working to address it. But similarly in forensics, um, you will often have, you know, a-, a case where the police are like, okay, we want you to match this to this. We're sure this is the guy. Yeah, make this happen. And so be, because a lot of these matching techniques, like especially in hair analysis or bite mark analysis, uh, rely on like pattern recognition, you can really, you can fool yourself. You can talk mm-hmm. yourself yeah, into exactly. a match. Yeah, or, or you can sort of shrug off minor discrepancies that mm-hmm. uh, might be, uh, you know, um, that might might be a problem for you in another case if you didn't already know what you're looking for. Just like every other avenue of science, blinding is important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's also important to remember, I think, that like the the whole question of is forensic science really science? Like that's an overly broad question. I think <laughs> it I was mean, your question, right? <laughs> um, but like the, uh, the just because a specific technique is problematic or even discredited mm-hmm. doesn't discredit this this entire branch of investigation field. and yeah. we, we already know that this is like a very important part of crime scene investigation and so well, it changed the field of crime scene investigation right so we just need to have sort of all the cards on the table and you know there needs to be uh, methods in place that prevent this sort of systematic bias that we've mm-hmm. seen, especially in favor of the prosecution mm-hmm. of, a, yeah. of specific suspects, um, moving forward. And fortunately, it looks like maybe we're seeing we're seeing a little bit of that starting now, but so it's hard some... to be optimistic. How, sorry, let me think of how to phrase this. How much should prosecutors have to um, inform a jury? How much DNA or analysis or whatever like how much of the science behind it or the you know saying this is a subjective science you can only take these how scientifically literate should the jury yeah need to, that's need to it be. yeah right like that's that's a hard question um and i think that like on the one hand it's kind of the defense's uh job to educate mm-hmm. the jury in that sense in the in the way we kind of have this adversarial court well, and yeah. there's actually laws in other countries like uh england and wales i think it's actually the judge's responsibility to make sure that the jury understands uh whatever science yeah. yeah is is being presented well, that's cool mm-hmm. smart and like one of the problems here is that there is very little standardization between yes. the different labs and there's much less oversight than we see and regulation than we see in some other branches of applied science mm-hmm. like medicine for example right right um i think that in informing the jury would probably be a good thing because i mean we talked about a lot of different topics very basically but i think we all came off with a lot more understanding of what it actually means if this is this or if it's not this than before so it's not they don't need to know the the really deep science of it i mean i don't know the gritty details yeah that because Mm -hmm. that is just going to confuse them more but for them to know that you know this this is what we can tell you either it's linked or either it's similar or it's not, and that's all that it can say. So yeah. if we say that yes, it's similar, that's how you know. Like you can to this level of certainty. Ex- yeah, yeah, yeah. Like to just 
so very broadly, that's probably a good step to start because most people in general are becoming more um, technologically and scientifically literate and understanding and just or even just hearing of these technologies. And it's the incomplete understanding. Uh, should shows like CSI be more held accountable for showing good science? Oh, we hmm. can't really keep media accountable to anything. Well, it's, it's or should just they like, or should they say the science that you are seeing is not like instead instead of like a disclaimer? Yeah, a disclaimer. well, I mean that's a little weird too. But instead <laughs> instead of instead of making the show more scientific, maybe tell the audience more overtly mm, what you're seeing is not a proper de- depiction of what real CSI investigators actually do. Or maybe crime you know, scene investigation investigators. They they want to keep it interesting, <laughs> obviously, which is why they you know they always find the evidence and they and they have always, sexy results and they have they always have sexy results, right? But maybe something that they could do is show the times where it doesn't turn out right, you know, it led them in the wrong direction or or something like that, right? Or we or some of the scenarios that we talked about where it gets very uh, convoluted and messy because there's lots of different players involved that you didn't expect, right? So maybe they could build their stories with those type of elements to help the audience learn that it's not as cut and dry as they, mm-hmm. they make it out to be. Good point. And that would make for interesting storytelling. Absolutely. <laughs> it wouldn't be boring to just be like, oh, it's not a match. Like, no, make that a story then. So now you go and look for something else or you have a new avenue or like, you know, yeah. like yeah. laziness, laziness, people. <laughs> so much laziness. Well, and part of the problem too, I think, is that because of these shows, even if you tell the jury... We can only tell you it's similar or it's not similar. And then you tell them it's similar. They go, oh, it's a match. You know, and it, yeah. they, they don't make that yeah. distinction in their minds. And so that's part of what Lauren was saying was the, you need to make that very, very clear that it's not as sexy and accurate as, as it looks like. You can't just push the enhance button. <laughs> I have never seen an enhance button on anything. That... Yeah, where do you get these computers with the enhance button? And it They're goes ri- from like 0.4 megapixel to 16. Like... It's, it's control ri- yeah. enhance. <laughs> <laughs> They're written in movie OS. We don't have oh, access to that oh, operating it's like, system It's yet. like the secret menu in McDonald's. If you don't know it, you just, you're not in the loop. You gotta, somebody has to introduce you to there it. There is so much DNA on that quadruple monster burger or whatever yes, there it is, is yeah. yeah announcements we still have a donation button up on our site you should go throw a few dollars in it luepodcast.wordpress.com we appreciate your help we do we like to continue to rent things like pop filters <laughs> DNA <laughs> encrusted pop filters yes. with barbecue sauce, with barbecue sauce and, and we're soon going to be losing our employee discount oh no oh, don't say that <laughs> <laughs> so we we could use a few dollars thrown our way to help us out with the hosting costs and the equipment rental costs and There's I don't know hosting costs? Co- are you guys getting paid? No, our web no, hosting. Oh, no, web, web hosting. hosting. Yeah, you think these storage. Twizzlers are free? The Newman House has a cover charge. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> Man, it should have a cover charge all the time. I come here and, you know, all the lov- lovely coffees and things I drink here all the time. You should just, you know, have a little bucket at the front door if people put money in. Jem had to paint his basement in the L-U-E-E colors. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently that's unrelated. <laughs> I'd like to say something. Maybe, I don't know if you were going to just about to say it. Um... So we mentioned a few podcasts ago, or it's been mentioned a little in the last little while about the play that uh, I co-wrote that Jem starred in. It was awesome. We it went was great. It. It yes, was great. Um, it has uh, it has since played. Um, it was 
not a rousing success, but uh, we didn't lose money on the project. So for a first time theater company, um, not losing money. I've been, I, and actually, I asked a lot of people about it. They're like, oh, you guys made money? Great. Yeah, most people just completely tank. So yeah. I was happy about that. But moreover, I would like to publicly thank Jem Newman for his unbelievable work in the show. If you obviously, you know, I don't know how many of our listeners, if any, actually saw it. Um, <laughs> meaning, I don't know how many local people listen to the podcast, right. is what I'm trying to say. At least one. Um, our partner went to see it with us. <laughs> yes. Um, but there was a hell of a lot of memorization and a lot of long speeches and <laughs> monologues and things. That that's we, not Jim's style at all. That we, right, yeah. That we wrote for this poor bastard. So, and he got it all. So I just wanted to say, on the record, thank you, Jim. Amazing. Woo! Yay! Yay! Well, thanks, Ian. It was a it was a pleasure. No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and you know. Any other announcements? Yeah. So, uh, just one last thing before we go. Uh, we have our 100th episode coming up. That is our next episode, people. Woo! We've been doing Whoa. this 100 episodes almost. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, if there are any topics, uh, big or small, that you're itching to have us talk about, or at least mention, or if you have any questions for our panelists, past or present, uh, send us an email at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com uh, and send that to us by August 29th at the latest. And uh, maybe we will talk about these things on the show. Thanks so much for listening. We love our listeners. We really appreciate the interaction we get on our Facebook page and uh, on Twitter. So let us know what you like, what you don't, and what you want us to talk about. And thanks for listening, guys. You know. Oh, also, give us a review on iTunes. You know, we like those too occasionally. We haven't had one in a while, so. If you really want to know how Jem's socks from Christmas are doing, you know, send us a message. We'll answer that on the podcast. You'll have Remember to go back and listen. Your, your Christmas gift. You got those fancy socks that were supposed to like oh, hold yeah, in the, the heat. Your ears, the oh socks. yeah, those socks, <laughs> man! I haven't worn those in a while because it's been so hot out. I'm, I'm always wearing sandals. <laughs> yeah, anyway, no, those are good socks. So seriously, any question goes. <laughs> We look forward to hearing from you. And that's our show. So thanks for joining us, everybody. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and everything else. Have a great night. Good night. Good night. Good night. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and everything else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James, who also edited this episode. Car batteries have to meet very strict regulations, so they have different... Um, other metals in there, things like battery acid, metals. <laughs> no battery they, acid they in Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> Every car battery must meet five percent Metallica, or else that would be awesome. <laughs> Metallica approved stamp on each of them. Fire burn. Anyway, I still have my great. I really want to go to the old spaghetti factory now, though. I know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. The real Bread. takeaway is let's go to the spaghetti factory. <laughs> yeah.
I no. wish we had an animator to go along with this podcast. <laughs> if the bucket don't fit, you must acquit. Joe, <laughs> shut up, let him talk. Okay. Oh my god. I can play games anywhere. Anywhere. <laughs> I can play Boulder Goat on a trip, and it's great. You should play Boulder Goat. It's like goat Is it like that... exactly what it sounds like? A it's... goat that jumps up mountains. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That sounds like a gem game. <laughs> You played uh, that stupid dune golf thing. Desert golfing is the greatest game. It is the most <laughs> elegant game ever designed. Anyway. Anyway. Pure mechanics. So, yeah. The hair analysis, the, um, the boulder goats. <laughs> that man had five boulder goats on him. So, He's guilty. Oh my God. Take it back.